Hi, my name is Brian and I'm the pastor of Vision at Holy City Church. I'm glad that you found our online sermon resources and I pray that the Lord would use them to strengthen your faith. I would exhort you not to use our online sermon resources as a substitute for regular involvement in your own local church. That being said, I pray that our teaching resources would be helpful to you and conform you even more into the image of Christ. Christmas time brings a lot of things out of deep storage. Things like outdoor lights or outdoor displays, indoor decorations, maybe you have a tree that you've been decorating recently. Christmas time can be a season that pulls old memories out of storage. Getting the family together often involves dusting off good memories and the laughs that go along with them. Getting the family together often involves unboxing the hard memories and the pain that comes along with them. Christmas time unveils a bunch of recipes. Maybe you like food like me and these recipes that go untouched the rest of the year, uh, they come out. Cookies uh, abound in wide varieties. Christmas hasn't even hit at, yet and my house is full of different kinds of cookies. We are totally capable of eating gingerbread men any day of the year. But something about Christmas time makes it allowable. Some of these goodies we absolutely love and look forward to, while others might make us wish they stayed in storage. Kids? Any kids in the room? You guys know what I'm talking about better than probably anybody else in the room. Are there any foods that come out this time of year that your parents try to get you to eat? Recipes that are gone most of the year, but at Christmas time, oh my goodness, here comes that dish. I have come to enjoy some of these hidden dishes over as an adult, but when I was a kid, there was no way you were going to get me to eat sweet potatoes, even if you melted golden marshmallows and put them on top. I don't care what you put with those green beans, I am not going to gladly swallow the mandated spoonful, right? Hopefully our taste buds have matured. Christmas time at my grandparents involved two dishes called Kleeton and Grutzewurst. The adults partook of those recipes, but I don't remember even being there being an attempt to get me to eat these traditional German dishes. Now I didn't get up here to tell you what I think are fascinating stories about food and Christmas decorations, but what I hope and hope to illustrate by bringing this sort of stuff to light, and I hope that it will help the preaching of the word this morning, is that I want to get you thinking about these Christmas recipes and these special occasion dishes to stir up and evoke want these, this sense of response that we have to these dishes, right? There were always at these family gatherings, these people who were excited, oh, it's Gutzeverse Day, and then there was everybody else that was saying, oh my goodness. How can you eat that stuff, right? There are these strong responses. Grutzewurst is oatmeal sausage, right? It's, uh, it's got raisins in it, if you're wondering. But yeah, anyway. Um, 
the point is, is that these dishes come to the table and some people are trying not to gag and other people are just sharpening their knife and fork ready to dig in. There's this response to these dishes that get us responding. There's either this glad reception or a dreaded refusal. Either I'm taking extra heapings of the, that green bean dish or I'm saying, Mom, how little can I get away with this year? These once-a-year dishes don't really do the middle of the road. People aren't, eh, take it or leave it sort of thing with some of these dishes. Uh, people are either really glad they're here or they're cringing at the sight. Either you love them or you hate them. The birth of Christ is described in similar terms. Whether you agree with anything that I simply, that I'm just trying to illustrate here or not, the birth of Christ is described and given to us in such a way that if you understand it correctly, you will have a strong response in this direction or a strong response in this direction. If you see Christ for who he truly is, you will either salivate and have joy or you will be gagging and trying to push away from what you are hearing. The birth of Christ forces, it demands, and it evokes a strong response of one kind or another. What I'm trying to communicate in this message this morning and why I'm talking about weird German dishes is that I hope to get this point across to you. If you see Jesus for who he truly is, you will have a strong response. And if you are sitting here this morning, and if you are sitting here at the end of the sermon, and you have no response to the preaching of Christ, then you do not see him for who he truly is. The Christ, seen clearly, evokes a strong response. That's the main idea that I want to get across this morning. Believing in Christ evokes response. Believing in Christ evokes response. Matthew 2 records the birth of Jesus and the strong response that his life brings to those who believe. And so as we work through the second chapter of Matthew, I want to highlight two points. The first being Jesus is the Christ. And secondly, belief evokes response. This first point is pretty long and, and got a lot of details in it, but again, that first point is going to be Jesus is the Christ. The second point is quick, um, but it's clear and, and important as well is that belief evokes response. Okay. Let's look together at this first point. Jesus is the Christ. Our time spent in Matthew 1 last week fixed our attention on Matthew's aim to show Jesus to be the promised descendant of Abraham who would usher in God's global blessing that would reach every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Matthew also showed us how Jesus descends from King David and fulfills God's promise to David to put one of his sons on the throne of a forever kingdom where peace is abundant and enemies are no more. This promised son of Abraham and son of David became known as the Messiah, or the Christ, 
as these promises were made and as the Jewish people carried on these promises and remembered one, one another, uh, they came to refer to this promised son as the Christ. And Matthew wants us to see that Jesus is this promised son who not only brings the Davidic kingdom into existence, but also provides the greatest salvation, that being the salvation from sins. Now, what I want you to see in Matthew, particularly in chapter 2 this morning, is that Matthew puts in a lot of work to show that Jesus is this promised Christ, that this Messiah, this Christ that the, the people of, uh, of Israel had been talking about and waiting, that Jesus is that particular person. He doesn't want us to see Jesus simply as a prophet or a good teacher. Matthew would say, my aim failed if you thought Jesus is a really good teacher. Or wow, Jesus is like Micah. Or Jesus is like Habakkuk, one of the great prophets. Matthew wants us to see that Jesus is the only Son of God, the one that the Old Testament prepares us for. So as we look at chapter 2, Matthew will show us how, how the scriptures point us to Jesus, and, and we're going to see how Matthew uses six quotations or allusions to previous acts and words of God that lead us to see Jesus as the promised Christ, okay? So another preacher that you know well likes to you, use sub-points, so my first point has six sub-points. We're going to move quickly. Uh, if you're a King James person, my exhortation to you is to gird up thy loins. Uh, if you are not a King James person and you wonder what I just said, uh, tie your shoes a little tighter, put your Crocs into sport mode. We're going to move through this particular first point. We're going to look at these six quotations or allusions that Matthew has in this second chapter. Okay, ready? Number one. The first sign pointing to Jesus comes in the second verse where we read the wise men's testimony that they are looking for the king of the Jews whose star that they have been following. We all know this story about the wise men who've traveled afar and these wise men who are following a star, and we, but we often fail to see any connection of this particular part of the story to any previous scripture. We don't think about this being a continuation of anything going on in the Old Testament unless we see these wise men rightly and they remind us of the wise men and magicians who were in Pharaoh's court during the time of Joseph and Moses, or if they remind us of those wise men trying to interpret dreams in Daniel's day. You should ha see here an allusion to those characters in the Old Testament, but more specifically, you should see a hint here in this first instance to a prophetic word that God spoke through the strange prophet Balaam back in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. I won't go into all the details of Balaam. I'll spare that spare that, save that for another day. But what I want you to know about this prophet Balaam and what God spoke through him, he said in his oracle in Numbers chapter 24, he said, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. Listen, a star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down the sons of Sheth. 
Balaam, though he is a odd character in the old speak, and he foretold a star, and this star represented a future Israelite who would crush the head of the ancient serpent and the enemies of God. And as the wise men follow their star in Matthew 2, they are pointing us to Christ Jesus, who is the fulfillment of Balaam's prophecy of a star, a ruler, a scepter who would come up out of the descendants of Israel. So, don't just think, here's this weird story about wise men from some Arabian country following stars, okay? This should be a reminder that this is happening, but it's also a connection to something God spoke through Balaam all the way back during the days of Moses in Numbers 24. The second sign, pointing to Jesus and that he would be the Christ, this promised Messiah, comes in verse 5 and verse 6. There, the biblical scholars answer King's, King Herod's question about where, what is the location that this promised son would be born. These scribes, these scholars, answer the question by pointing to a word spoken by God through the prophet Micah. Micah 5.2 is recorded here in Matthew 2. But if we read a bit more from Micah, particularly chapter 5, it's hard to miss that this prophecy, this word from God through the prophet, is foreshadowing Jesus. Let me, let me read for you from Micah 5. We read this. But you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be a ruler in Israel. Notice how this is pointing to this little town of Bethlehem. But the passage goes on. This ruler in Israel will come, his coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Micah 5 is clearly speaking about this great Messiah, this longed-for son of Abraham, this longed-for son of David, and it points directly to this little town of Bethlehem, that he would come from there. The Messiah, shepherd of Israel and prince of peace, will come up out of this little town of Bethlehem. This little town was the birth, birthplace of the shepherd King David and now the shepherd King Jesus, who is the Christ. We've got two pieces working together, two points showing us how Jesus, this little toddler at this point of the story, is this promised son, the promised Christ. Number three, you ready? Ready? Number three? Santos, you ready? All right. The third evidence given in chapter 2 that Jesus is the Christ is found in verse 15. 
As crazy and bloodthirsty Herod gears up to defend his throne by killing any toddlers that might be God's promised king of the Jews, Joseph is directed to lead his family to the safety of Egypt. This event and this location is no coincidence. And Matthew sees it as a typological fulfillment of Hosea 11 verse 1, which quotes God as having said, quote, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The first hearers of Hosea's words, of his prophecy, Hosea's initial audience would have heard these words as a reminder, not a projection, not a prediction, but a reminder, a reminder of God's redemption and rescue of Israel from the slavery in Egypt. Hosea spoke many years after uh, the exodus out of Egypt. The people who heard him would have said, oh yeah, I remember Moses. I remember the ten plagues. I remember the Passover. I remember that. The initial hearers of Hosea would have thought back. But Matthew knows that the people of Israel are occasionally called God's son. And they serve as a nation. They serve as a prototype of which Jesus is the perfect fulfillment. And so if we think of this word, when Israel was a child, I loved him. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Matthew knows that this has connotations not only for the people of Israel, but for the son of God who would come as a descendant of Abraham and a descendant of David. Israel, as a nation throughout the Old Testament, is a sort of prototype of which Jesus is the fulfillment. Jesus is the true Son of God. The Egyptian exodus of God's Son, Israel, foreshadows the Egyptian exodus of God's Son, Jesus, who is the promised Christ. In the same way that God led Israel into Egypt and then led them out, God led his son Jesus into Egypt and then led him out. Matthew says, I want you to see that the, the path, the, the residences in which Jesus live are not a coincidence. The locations in which he live are, are purposeful and meaningful because I want you to see God is showing us that Jesus is the true Israel. Jesus is the true Son of God. Jesus is this promised Messiah, the promised Christ. I need more water when I'm moving quickly. You with me? Okay, anybody getting, Anybody need a towel or a bucket to catch some water near him? Otherwise, we're doing okay? Okay, good. The fourth way that Matthew weaves Jesus into the Old Testament and shows him to be the ultimate expression of God's is found in verses 17 and 18. As Herod sends out his jack-booted thugs to snuff out the little lives of Bethlehem boys, rightly so, their mothers weep. Herod feels threatened, and if you know anything about history, Herod doesn't like to be threatened. Herod has one tool to deal with people, whether it's his wife or his sons, who make him feel threatened. He kills them. And we see that same tool being used on these Bethlehem boys. And then we understand that this whole little town, even though maybe wasn't a lot of little boys that were killed, these mothers are weeping. Their sons have been snatched 
from their homes and they have been killed simply because this king feels threatened. The chaos, the chaos that was caused by this murderous monarch reminds Jesus' disciple Matthew of a similar time of grief that's recorded in the scroll of the prophet Jeremiah. Matthew's telling the story. He's thinking about all these weeping mothers, and he's reminded of a time in the days of Jeremiah when mothers were weeping. And in Jeremiah's day, Israel wasn't weeping because of anything King Herod was doing, but they were weeping in the anguish of being under siege by the foreign enemies who would soon take them into exile. Jeremiah prophesied in those days, thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Jeremiah records the weeping of bereaved Israelite mothers, and Matthew sees Jesus entering into those very griefs and sorrows that the nation of Israel has borne time and time again. As Israel went into Egypt and then needed to be delivered, so Jesus went into Egypt and then was brought out. As the, the people of Israel wept at the death of their sons, so Jesus was there present in the midst of that chaos. Jesus was there present in his body while all of this suffering and sorrow was happening again in Israel. Matthew doesn't cite Jeremiah 31 so much as a predictive prophecy. Again, Matthew doesn't read Jeremiah 31 as saying, hey, there's something that's going to happen when Jesus is born. He's looking back to that and he sees that as an incident in which Jesus is revisiting Israel's sadness, that Jesus is being born, not into the, the sweetest time in Israel's life, but Jesus is being born into a season of suffering, much like the Israelites have dealt with time and time again in their history. The sorrows of the past are repeated in the present, but this time Christ, God the Son, walks alongside them. When Israel was suffering in the days of Jeremiah, Jesus wasn't there walking bodily. But here in the days of Matthew, that he records, Jesus is there. Jesus has entered into the suffering of Israel. Fifth, the fifth way that Matthew leads us to see Jesus as the Christ, the promised son who fulfills God's promises, is in verse 20. King Herod the Psycho, uh, that's an official term, uh, King Herod the Psycho dies. And God sends an angel to direct Joseph to lead his family out of Egypt and into the promised land. The angel tells Joseph, rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who sought the child's life are dead. The angel's reason and encouragement to leave Egypt and go back to Israel is in that phrase, those who sought the child's life are dead. We can read that and say, yeah, that's a good motivation. That would be a good reason to maybe move back into the old neighborhood is that those who are seeking his life is, are now dead. 
Uh, it's a perfect description of that scenario. But if we understand that the Bible is regularly repeating itself in such a way that we might see deeper into the meaning of what is really going on, we have to ask ourselves, have I heard this phrase before? Okay, this is an illusion. Uh, those of you who uh, quote movies with your friends know how this works. You know that a seemingly normal phrase which fits the occasion is actually hilarious because it's one, from one of your favorite movies, right? And there's a connection to what's going on now to one of your favorite movies. Those of you who uh, do this sort of thing, you know what it's like to use the exact words or even really close to the same words that they carries a deeper meaning from what you just said than simply a response to the situation. Yes, Joseph, take your family back. Herod, the guy who's trying to kill your son, is dead. But the way Matthew records it reminds us and causes us to think, hey, have I heard that phrase before? Is this a, where is this coming from? Okay, so this phrase, those who sought the child's life are dead. This statement is a nearly identical quotation of Exodus 4, where the Lord spoke to Moses, who was hiding in the land of Midian. My, Moses was hiding in Midian because he had killed an Egyptian who was abusing a fellow Hebrew. In Exodus 4, God is sending Moses back to Egypt to rescue God's people from their painful oppression under Pharaoh. God exhorts Moses, the soon-to-be Savior, to move. And what words does God use to motivate Moses, the would-be Savior, to move? He says, the men who are seeking your life are dead. It's not a coincidence that Matthew and Moses, the writer of Exodus, use the same phrase. It's not accidental. Matthew says, hey, I'm going to say this in such a way so that you think about what you know from the book of Exodus. I want you to be thinking about Moses. I want you to think about how Moses, the would-be mediator, the would-be savior, was motivated to move and to follow God's command to go with the comfort of knowing that those who were seeking his life are now dead. Again, we don't see Exodus 4 as a, a direct prediction of the Christ moving from one place to another after a certain threat has died. But we do see Matthew using this story to show how Jesus and Moses have a lot in common. Not only is Moses a savior of God's people, he is a prototype of the coming Christ, the true and final savior of God's chosen people. So as Matthew says, I want you to think rightly about Jesus, he says, I'm going to use some words that make you think about Moses. The same encouragements from God that motivated Moses to go and deliver a people, lo and behold, definitely not a coincidence, God uses those sa that same phrase to motivate Jesus' earthly father, Joseph, to move Jesus to the place where he would do his saving work. The sixth way and the last way that I will highlight from Matthew 2, this sixth way that Matthew shows us that Jesus is the utterly unique Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God and Savior, is seen in verse 23. 
There in verse 23, there's a reference to the prophets, and this particular reference to the prophets is the most difficult to understand in this section. This reference to the prophets doesn't refer to a clear prototype like Moses or the people of Israel. It doesn't refer to a specific quotation or prediction from one of the prophets. But what's being highlighted by Matthew here, as he speaks about Nazareth, is, is unique. And I think it's helpful if we take a little bit of time to uh, wrestle with it, even though it's not as simple as the others that's, that have preceded it. Nazareth, this little town in Israel, is not directly referenced in the Old Testament. But what I think is going on here is that Nazareth fits into a larger category of places that are referenced in relation to the promised Christ. Okay? So, point. What am I saying? Nazareth isn't spoken. Jesus is going to spend his grade school years in Nazareth. The Old Testament doesn't say that. But what I think Nazareth does as a podunk little town that doesn't matter is it fits within a category of little towns that don't really matter. Okay, and so this reference to Nazareth is a reference to dumpy little towns that nobody knows much about. If you were to compile what the scriptures and what the history books tell us about Nazareth, if you were to put all that stuff together, you wouldn't have much. There's not a lot to be gained or gathered about the town of Nazareth. The point that is clear by this understanding is that there's not a lot to know about Nazareth. Why don't we know much about Nazareth? Because there's not a lot to know about them. There's not a lot going on in Nazareth. It's a weak little town and not a lot is happening. Matthew's original audience would have understood this. They would have heard him say that he would come from Nazareth and they would have said Nazareth Nazareth where's that and I think it's important that we bring John 1 into this to help us who wouldn't have had the same understanding of the locations as the original audience the disciple Philip in John chapter 1 is excited when he meets Jesus and he goes and finds Nathanael Philip says, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. If you remember this story, Nathanael then responds to this news. Oh great, you found the one that's spoken of by Moses and by the prophets. Finally, we have the Messiah. No. What does Nathanael say? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? When the original audience of Matthew heard him refer to Jesus as being a Nazarene, the idea that he's communicating is that he came from a place that nobody had any expectations of. I didn't want to know anybody from Nazareth. You delete all of your contacts when they move to Nazareth, right? You don't care about the guy's story that says, oh yeah, I grew up in Nazareth. The point Matthew is making is not that the Christ was expected to come from this particular town, but that he was expected to come from the social gutter. 
Nazareth was not a place where you start your story and become someone significant. Nazareth is the, uh, one of a number of towns that could have been understood as the social gutter. Does the Old Testament talk about the Messiah coming from the social gutter? does from a number of places, and probably the most well-known is Isaiah 53. Think about Nazareth as a despised and rejected place. And here, Isaiah 53.3, it says, He, that is the Christ, was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, he was despised, and we esteemed him not If you didn't think about all the time that exists between Matthew, or Isaiah 53 and John chapter 1, you might think Isaiah is describing Nathaniel's attitude toward Jesus. Anything good come out of Nazareth? That's precisely what someone would say if they despised people from Nazareth. That's precisely what someone would say if they had a tendency to reject people from Nazareth. Nathaniel said, a man from Nazareth, I don't want to get up off of my comfortable seat. Nothing good comes from that place. Nathaniel didn't want to see him face to face. He didn't esteem him. And so when Matthew speaks of Jesus being a Nazarene and that this is um, spoken of by the prophets, he's not saying we knew that Jesus was going to come from Nazareth. No, what Matthew is saying is that the scriptures tell us, the prophets tell us, that the Messiah would come up from a rejected, scornful place that nobody cared about or esteemed. Isaiah said the Christ would be despised, rejected, and one that men were not keen to meet. And that seems to be the very thing evoked in Nathaniel. And presumably everyone else when they learned that Jesus was from Nazareth. Matthew wants us to know Jesus' lowly hometown so that we would see him as the humble Messiah promised in the scriptures. As Matthew tells the story of the first years of Jesus, he's bending over backwards to show us how Jesus is the fulfillment of the patterns and promises God has established in the law and prophets. If you were paying attention as Brian and Elise were reading this text, or if you're familiar with this chapter at all, you would see this as a strange way to write because it's block quotation, block quotation, footnote, footnote, footnote. This is a strange way to write. But what Matthew is doing here is not creating his own story. He's piecing together how Jesus fits into the old, old story. And what Matthew is doing from these all of these footnotes and all of these references and these block quotes is he's going to great lengths. He's bending over backwards so that you see Jesus as more than a good teacher, as more than a good prophet, a faithful prophet. He wants you to see Jesus as the direct fulfillment of everything that God said and did in the Old Testament. The longings of Israel for a ruler who would come and lead them to everlasting peace fulfilled in this Jesus. Matthew wants us and his original audience to see that Jesus is this Christ. Matthew wants us to believe that Jesus is God's promised Savior, and so he stacks up a pile of evidence. 
Just in chapter 2 alone, Matthew exhibits exhibit A, B, C, D, E, and F. Six different proofs to show us, look, Jesus is the Christ. Here's a reason, here's a reason, here's a reason. Matthew wants us to see the proof and believe that Jesus is the promised Christ. Many people think of faith as acting blindly. You know the phrase, um, blind faith, or taking a leap of faith. Many people think of faith as acting blindly, and that the call to follow Jesus requires us to shut off our brains. I simply want to say that this is false, and in no way Christian. The Bible doesn't expect you or anybody else to shut off their analytical minds. It doesn't call you to shut off your brain and become a dummy. Matthew doesn't say, hey, Jesus is the Christ, you just have to accept it. He doesn't say, Jesus is the Messiah, take it or leave it. He says, no, let me show you, 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 let me show you. Proof, 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 proof. There is most certainly a leap when we trust Jesus. But this leap is accompanied by facts, proofs, prophecies, witnesses, evidences, signs, and promises from him who has kept every one of his promises. Friends, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the promised rescuer. Matthew has piled up his proofs and laid them in front of us. Only a hardened heart, enslaved by sin, can look at all of this and not believe that Jesus is the Christ. The facts are laid there in front of us. Either you accept them or you don't. If you can look at all these facts and say, meh. And what is that work in you as a hardened heart enslaved to sin? I don't say that lightly, but I think you'll understand yourself better if you let the scriptures define who you are. If you look at the proofs of who Christ is, the scriptures say that if you reject Christ, reject Jesus as the Christ, you are a person who has a hard heart that is enslaved to sin. All the evidence is directing us to see Jesus as the promised son. Many will fail and refuse to accept this reality. Many hear of Christ, but their hardened hearts, their enslavement to sin, keep them from accepting this reality and believing and trusting in Jesus. But gladly, those who believe in Jesus as the Christ and receive him as the Messiah, they receive him, and their response is radically different. So I want to look at our second point, that belief evokes response. Okay? Before I move into this, I want, hopefully the rain and my trying to plow through the rain doesn't leave uh, a need for clarification. I'm happy to have more conversations if I've failed you this morning. But what I want you to understand clearly from Matthew 2 is that Jesus is not just some Jewish boy. 
Jesus is the fulfillment of everything God was doing in the Old Testament through his prophets, through his rescuers, through his promises. The Old Testament is preparing us for Jesus and Matthew saying, please don't miss my point. Jesus is that son. And if you're at a sticking point here, I want to encourage you, don't move on until you understand the point that's here. Do you understand the point that's being made? Jesus does not present himself, neither do his witnesses present Jesus as anything other than the unique Son of God. If you come up with a different opinion of Jesus, you have to create it by smothering all the evidence, and you have to silence the witnesses to come up with that opinion. Okay? The scriptures put it all the chips on the table and say, Jesus is the Christ. Call me a liar. Jesus is the Christ. Okay. Jesus is the Christ, and believing that he is the Christ evokes a response. Matthew makes it really clear that Jesus is the Savior promised and foreshadowed throughout the Old Testament, and as this Messiah steps into human society, he causes quite a stir. That's a subtle way of describing what's going on in chapter 2, isn't it? Causing a stir. Our passage records three examples of men who believed that Jesus was the Christ. All three of them believed this truth, but they didn't all respond in the same way. Okay, I'm going to tug and pull and expand some of y'all's definition of believe, but I want you to, as we look at these three Three examples of believing that Jesus is the Christ, I want you to see that each and every one of them has a response because they believed what was stated about Christ, that he is, about Jesus, because he is the Christ. All right. The first response, okay, there aren't six under point two, thankfully, right? Uh, There's only three here, so one, two, three. Okay. The first response recorded of a response to the Christ is the wise men. These men belong to a Gentile kingdom full of false gods. While they have been watching the night skies in hopes of hearing from the heavens, God speaks to them in their language. Okay, When you think about the promise God made to Abraham about gathering a people from every household, every language, look at what God is doing with these Arabian wise men. They speak a different language. They're looking in the stars. They're waiting for the gods to speak to them from the stars. And God says, I can speak that language and I will speak to you and I will point you to Christ. The light that these wise men see in the sky is interpreted by them to signify the birth of a king of the Jews. There's historical evidence in various places to say that this is a common occurrence that these magicians or these wise men would look to the stars and when they'd see a star, they would understand that to signify that a king has been born, someone significant has been born to rule. Uh, They see this sky, whether it was whatever it happened to be in in the heavens, they saw it and they interpreted it to mean that the king of the Jews had been born. Their belief in this sign moved them to take what was possibly a 40-day journey to see and worship this newborn king. 
They say they see this star in the sky. They're moved with faith to believe that this is a signification of something that's happening down on earth. And they move, they travel to Israel. And some estimations are that this would have been possibly a 40-day journey on a camel or a horse or whatever uh, to get to this place so they could find this newborn king. In verse 10, we are told that when they found Jesus, they, quote, rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Okay? Uh, I just, the grammar of this is, is, is fun. Um, some of you like to write with emojis and lots of uh, exclamations. Rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Uh, there are emojis aplenty in this sentence. There are exclamations aplenty in this communication. Matthew's communicating, these guys were amped. They were excited. They saw Jesus, happiest day of their lives. They were very, very happy to have found this child. And then in verse 11, it says they fell down before him and presented him with lavish gifts. That scene is so worthy of our meditation and our prolonged thinking about that, that these wise men traveled a great distance. They found what may have been a two-year-old, and they fell to their faces gladly, excited to see a two-year-old. Three specific gifts are mentioned. Not only were these men excited, not only did they fall on their faces to show their, their honor and their worship of this child, but they brought these gifts. These three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, are mentioned, and this is where we get the idea that there were three wise men. So the idea is three gifts are, are, are named, therefore one wise man carried one, one carried another and the third guy carried the third gift. Uh, the reality is, is that we don't know that there were three wise men or not. Uh, there's no way of knowing if it was as few as two wise men, right? So you need at least two men to be plural, right? You, am, I, am I moving too fast for you? Okay, two is plural. That's the smallest amount it could be. But there could have been as many as dozens of wise men traveling together. I don't know. I don't have any reason to believe. But one guy could carry gold, frankincense, and myrrh, right? Two could carry that much. Twenty-four could carry that amount of gifts to Jesus, right? We don't know, but we know that it's plural. And it's important to see that these great men, the point isn't how many of them, but the point is showing that these, these men very clearly moved everything off of their calendars. They made costly, they made a costly and dangerous, painful journey. I, I get sore just thinking about riding a horse or a camel, and these guys did it for 40 days. They humbled themselves in the presence of a really poor child, and they made themselves less wealthy because they believed this little boy was sent by God. They saw the star. They believed that this was the Christ. They believed that this was a special boy. And everything that was theirs suddenly became something for the king. 
We don't know exactly what these men believed about Jesus. I don't think it's right to assume that they suddenly became perfect disciples of Jesus. But it's clear that they believed that Jesus was the Christ. He was the special Son of God. But it is abundantly clear that their glad pursuit of him, we can see in their glad pursuit of Jesus that they believed he was worthy of their worship. They believed that Jesus was king and they wouldn't be kept from honoring him. Okay, All sorts of questions. What Gold, frankincense, and myrrh, what exactly country were they from? What were they doing? How did this, what kind of star, comet, all of these other questions that get wrapped up into this. It is abundantly clear that wealthy men believed that Jesus was worthy of traveling a great distance, clearing all sorts of things off of their calendars, thinking about a three-month journey, perhaps, to go and see Jesus and to make themselves humble before him, to pay homage to this Jesus. The point is very clear. Jesus is no mere little boy. This display of faith poses questions to you and me. Okay, this is where I'm going to start like poking your chest a little bit. We want to observe, we want to know the facts, but how does this come home to someone like me? This display of faith in Jesus poses questions to us. Do I believe that Jesus is king? There's an easy right answer to that question, right, Truett? Do I believe that Jesus is king? Right answer is yes, sir. But giving the right answer is not the same as believing something, is it? Do my travel plans, my schedule, my finances, my attitude and behavior reflect my belief that Jesus is the Christ? Do I look at my my budgeting app and my calendar app? Do I think about my attitude and the way I respond to other people? Do I see those things as a, a way of worshiping Jesus? Because these wise men did. They saw Jesus as worthy of worship and their lives were laid down in front of him. Friends, faith without works is dead. If you say you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior, then your life will show it. Belief evokes response. But if you are constantly excusing yourself from taking costly steps to worship King Jesus, then at best there is something seriously wrong with your faith. And at worst, and at worst your faith is nothing but a lie. Okay. I want to say this with all compassion and yet all sobriety. If you say, I was baptized as a child, I grew up in the church, I'm a Christian, anytime you ask me, but my life looks precisely like those who do not believe in Jesus, then at best, your faith in Jesus is desperately sick and you need to move quickly. Or, you're a complete liar and you have no faith at all. Okay. I don't want to embarrass anybody, but I, you know what I want more is I don't want anybody to show up at the feet of Jesus on Judgment Day and find out then 
that they didn't have actual faith. Okay? Genuine, true belief evokes a response, and we see this very clearly in the wise men. Their belief that Jesus was special evoked a clear response. Friends, I don't want you to be found a liar when Jesus comes back. <clears throat> the second response to the birth of Christ is seen in King Herod. We might not initially think of this ruler as an expression of faith, but it's clear that he believed that there was at least something potentially great about Jesus. I wouldn't have called on Herod to tell me the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. I wouldn't have asked him that. But it is very obvious that Herod thought Jesus was something special. Herod and those in seats of authority because of him, Herod and his cronies, are troubled by the wise men's pursuit, according to verse 3. Verse 7 and 8 record Herod as being sneaky, deceptive, and manipulative in an attempt to protect his comfort. He pretends to be one of the wise men, but he's hypocritically hiding his fear. When it becomes clear that the wise men hadn't served him by taking him to Jesus, Herod's anger turned into murderous fury in verse 16, and he then snuffed out the lives of citizens he was appointed to protect. We don't know exactly what Herod believed, but he is a clear example of a man who believed Jesus was special. And Herod's clear response is that he wanted Jesus out of the picture. He understood that this king wasn't going to allow him to live any old way he wanted to. Herod rightly understood that if Jesus is king, then he is not. In James chapter 2, verse 19, it's written, You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Knowing that there is a God, that Jesus is his son and the only way of salvation will not separate you from the demons. Hey, kids. Kids, can I talk to you for a second? I grew up in the church and heard Bible stories aplenty. Right? I want, you, I want you to hear what I have to say to you. Saying that you believe that there is one God and that Jesus is his son and the only way of salvation is through faith in his son will not separate you from the demons because the demons know that stuff too. What separates you from the demons is a different response. The demons refuse to bow to Jesus. They refuse to say, Jesus is my king. And that's where it becomes an important thing for us. And this is what makes it hard for those of us, adults and parents who are trying to lead children and other people into faith in Christ. Right? Knowing the right answer doesn't make you any different from demons. It's your response. The demons know that there is one God, that Jesus is his son. But they refuse to bow to him. They refuse to give up what they think is freedom to do whatever they want. Herod didn't want to give that up either. Friends, are you clinging to your throne and resisting Jesus' commands? 
If you don't think Jesus threatens your freedom a little bit, you don't understand who Jesus is. Are you trying to put Jesus in a category? If you put Jesus in a category where, where he says, hey, whatever you want to do, you have stripped Jesus of his Christness. You are not seeing Jesus for who he truly is. Do you know that Jesus is Lord but refuse to let him tell you how to live? If Jesus is king, then you are not and you can't keep telling God how you're going to do things. This is so easy and so common even for faithful Christians to fall into the trap that says, I love Jesus and I want to be with him in heaven, but God needs to do this, that, and the other thing for me. And we don't think that God is the one giving the commands and that God is the one giving direction, that God is the king. Friends, this is really good news. You're not the king. Jesus is the king. The third example of the response that belief evokes is seen in Joseph. Mary's husband almost blends into the background in the shadow of crazy old Herod and these glorious wise men, but his response to the Christ is no less beautiful. Joseph believed the testimony of the angels who brought God's word to him about this child. Chapter 1 told us he took responsibility for Mary and the child in her womb, though that wasn't his initial desire. And here in verse 14, he humbly receives God's angelic direction to take Mary and Jesus into a foreign country, far, far, far from his family and everything that was familiar. Then in verse 21, we see that Joseph persisted in Egypt. He didn't stop doing what God told him to do. He persisted in Egypt until God spoke through an angel sending him back to the land of Israel. Joseph is a simple man who simply wanted to do the right thing and follow in the footsteps of the faithful men who went before him. He wanted to obey God's law, love a wife, and care for some kids with the money he earned from his unimpressive employment. He probably never imagined leaving Israel or doing anything that would endanger his life. But when God commanded, Joseph obeyed. Joseph didn't get any parades in his honor, but his choice to simply obey the word of God is worthy of admiration and imitation. Nobody would have known Joseph's name Joseph is a nobody who keeps moving around and his reputation keeps taking hits. His resume keeps getting marks on it. That was the last thing that Joseph wanted to do. But when God said, Joseph, I want you to do this, what did Joseph do? Sir, yes, sir. Simple, humble obedience that when God speaks, Joseph obeys. The whole of Scripture clearly portrays Jesus, son of Joseph and Mary, to be God's promised Messiah. Jesus comes onto the scene of human history and he evokes a strong response from everyone who sees him for who he truly is. If you truly believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Savior, you will not calmly nod your head in agreement. Genuine belief evokes a genuine and visible worship. 
If you serve in the courts of the king and your vocation provides you great wealth, Jesus is worthy of your joyful generosity. If you are the sovereign ruler of a nation or you've simply claimed the life God has given you as your own, Jesus is a threat to your proud sense of being able to do whatever you please. If you are a humble carpenter with humble desires to live a quiet life, the word of God calls you to humbly obey the call to love Jesus and his servants, even if that means risking your simple desires to live a simple life. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the promised Christ and the Savior of his people. The history of God's works and words in the Old Testament prepare us for his coming, and the works and words of God in the New Testament prepare us for his second coming. There is no faith where there is no response. Friends, it is my prayer that God will grant us genuine faith to see Jesus as the Christ and to see this belief evoke our own glad worship. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, ruling and reigning forever and ever and ever, took on flesh. Why? So that he could unite himself with sinners like you and me. And in so doing, save us. Jesus Christ had a birth so that he could have flesh that he could take to the cross, that God could raise from the, cross, from the dead and to lift into the ascension into heaven. And he has given us this meal that we're going to enjoy together to remember that Christ came to us. Jesus, the great Son of God, came to us so that we might know salvation in him.